Well, hello, Grove, family, friends. It's great to be with you again. Hope you're well. We continue to pray for you, lift you up. I'm sure you're doing that for us as well. Um, let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to get out that page of notes for the message, small group questions. I hope you have them printed out. And uh, also let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to stop and, and pick up some emblems for communion after the message, uh, some juice, some water, something solid, a cracker, a piece of bread. And if you need to do those things, let me encourage you to stop the, the video and, and go take care of those and come back. And when you're done, hit, hit play again. Now, back in my high school days, my sport of choice was baseball. If you think about it, it was kind of my only choice. I was way too short for a basketball. I was not nearly big enough for football. I, I just sort of kind of slid in to baseball. I started playing city ball when I was 10. By the time I was 12, I had gravitated to being a catcher. And, uh, and pretty quickly, I grew into be one of the best players in the city. That led to my high school days, and it was kind of through all that that I started thinking about becoming a professional baseball player. Now, my high school coach was a former professional player himself, or at least he wanted to be. He was a, he was a high school phenom. He was a catcher who was drafted right out of high school. The problem was his draft position was really low, like, you know, down in the 15th, 16th, 17th round. So he decided that his best way to improve to improve his stock in the professional trade would be to go to college, play in college, improve, hone his skills, and then hopefully enter into a draft two or three years down the road where he would be picked up in a higher round. Sadly, while he was in college, his first year in college, he blew out his knee, and that was the end of his professional career. So he finished his college education. He got an education degree. And then he came to my high school as a teacher, but mostly he came to be a coach. My sophomore year, he took over our Frosh Soft baseball team. Now, my high school was a perennial sports monster. We won league in, in almost every sport every year. And then we would go on from winning the league championship into the state championships, and, and we would win two, three, four state championships every year. Basketball, uh, water polo, wrestling, golf. I mean, sports, we were a mecca. But our baseball team was horrible. In fact, the year before Coach Terrell took over the freshman-sophomore baseball team, our freshman-sophomore team went one win, and 21 losses. Now, the year he took over the team, it was completely reversed. We won the league championship. We went 21 wins and one loss. And uh, while I was thinking about that this week, I went back onto the internet and I found some pictures from our high school team. But here, here's, here's my high school. This is the freshman, sophomore team from 1975. Go ahead, look at the blast from the past. See if you can pick me out. Chad tried, failed miserably, couldn't do it. So I know it's probably gonna be difficult because now you're sitting here looking at the picture trying to find me, but anyway, back to attention here. Anyway, Terrell was so successful as our freshman, sophomore coach that the following year, they promoted him to be the varsity coach. And that year, our varsity team, which the year before was horrible, went on to win the league championship. And then that year they went on and also won the state championship. 
I say they because that summer in City Ball, I wrecked my knees, and that was the end of my baseball career. 15 years of age, life was over. Now, over the years, I've thought long and hard about what made Tim Terrell such a great baseball coach. And, and the deal with him is that he was a stickler for the details of the game. And one of the things that he was always hammering home hammering into our heads, driving into our minds, was that the game of baseball is about 90 or 95% mental. I mean, seriously, he, he drilled this mental part of the baseball game into our minds. See, in baseball, it's easy to drift. You're out in right field, and you're, you're standing out there, and in a game, you may have two or three balls that are hit out to your position. And because of that, you can spend all this time out in the outfield kind of just standing around. And before you know it, you can just drift. Your mind can move to another planet. And before you know it, you're, 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 you're a zillion miles away from the game. So Terrell was always yelling from the dugout. We would be out in the field and he'd be, he'd be yelling, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's runners in first and second. What are you going to do? If the ball's hit to you, if the ball's coming to you, what do you do? Know before it comes. At every instant, at every moment of the game, you had to know beforehand what you were doing. It was a constant mantra that was coming out of him. Think, be aware, be ready. And honestly, that's the call of God to each and every Christian. Keep your head in the game. Because in life, it's easy to drift. And that's especially true when you're a Christian. Life just happens. It's happening around us. Before you know it, you're in the middle of it. And if, if you're if you're not careful, you can get down a road you never intended to walk. That's why followers of Jesus are called, encouraged, commanded to stay focused. Set your mind, set your heart, stand unwaveringly, be focused. And that's especially true when you are moving through seasons that are difficult. We're in a series looking at people who lived in difficult times and made, and made a difference in their life. And we're asking the question, why, why were they able to make a difference? What is it about them? Their, their, their personal traits, their habits, their attitudes, the practices in their life. What was it about them that enabled them to make a difference? So we started off looking at Esther. And she understood that she had been raised for such a time as this. She, God had brought her to this position. Last week, we were talking about Daniel, how he was exercising influence for 64 years in, in Babylon. And today, we're turning to another person, and we find him in Luke chapter 10. So turn in your Bible, and uh, let's dig in. And I, I, wanna, I wanna encourage you to begin by noticing that there was a question that was being asked. And the question was, how do I get to heaven? Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on this particular day, Jesus is confronted by what has to be the most important question that any person could ever ask. And the man was asking, the man who was asking the question was a teacher of the law, is really significant. I mean, the word used here is namakas, namas, law. 
The word could actually be translated lawyer, but in those days, and with his Jewish heritage, he would have been a scribe. Now, scribes were men who were experts in the interpretation and explanation of the Mosaic law. If you had a question about a passage of scripture, these were the go-to guys. This is the guy that you would want to go talk to. And don't you find it interesting that he's asking this question of Jesus? If, if this teacher of the law is asking Jesus about how to find eternal life, if he's testing Jesus with this question, it means that he had no confidence that he had found it. All of his years of study had left him completely with no hope or any kind of eternal security. He, he wasn't sure at all where he stood with God. But, but I love this about the man. The most important question in life was on his mind. Nothing comes even close to the importance of this question. We are all eternal beings. Now, James says the earthly part of our life, the fleshly, the physical part of our life is like a mist. It appears for a moment and then it's, it's gone. It just vanishes. But that doesn't mean that we are gone. The truth is we will live forever, and you will live forever in one of two places. There's heaven, there's hell. This guy had the right question, the most important question. It was on his mind. And the second thing I notice about him is that he had come to the person who had the ability to answer his question. I mean, who better to answer his question about eternal life than Jesus? Jesus was God, and I believe that God would know something about the topic of eternal life. Now listen, friends, I, I just wanna say that we are wise when we grapple with this all-important question. And in this present day of uncertainty that we are living in here, it, it, it's, it's, it's good to know that it's a question that's flowing through a lot of people's minds with the threat of death that is literally floating all around us with the COVID-19 virus. And you know, we're, all, we're all looking at these, these death numbers that are coming at us every day. It, I, I would say that there are a lot of people around us that are, that are thinking about eternity. What happens to me when I die? How do I, how do I get to heaven? Which led Jesus to respond. And, and here's how he responded. He responded with a question. What's, what's written in the law? There was no way Jesus was shrugging off this guy or his question. It, it was unbelievably important. But, but, but what I find really interesting here is that Jesus didn't answer his question. Instead, he flipped the question right back on the guy. Luke chapter 10, verse 26, what is, what's, what's written in the law? How, how, how do you read it? Now, if this guy was really an expert in the law, then he should know what the law says. And not surprisingly, this guy had an answer. He knew it. In fact, he knew exactly how to answer. Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The guy didn't miss a beat. As you would expect, this expert in the law went straight to the law, straight to the, to the first five books of Moses in the Old Testament, and he answered the question. He quoted from two passages of Scripture. First, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6. It was actually a prayer that the Jews prayed every day. Shema means hear. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then the tag coming out of Leviticus chapter 19, 18, and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Now, honestly, this was the exact response that Jesus gave when he was quizzed about what were the greatest, what was the greatest commandment in the Old Testament. A few days before he died, he's being asked this question, and Jesus responded in Matthew 22, verse 37. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what Jesus said here is the Old Testament law is riddled with laws. In fact, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. But really, out of all those 613, there are really only two. Love God, love others. When Jesus said all of the Old Testament law hangs here, what he was saying is all of these other laws, the other 611, all define these two. What, what, what it means is that this teacher in the law had it right. He got it. If you want eternal life, then focus right here. Keep the commandments. Now that said, let, let me make sure that you hear this really, really clearly. Being able to, to cite the, the commandments doesn't get you to heaven. God's not interested in what you say. He's interested in what you do. Keeping the commandments is what gets you to heaven. And here's the problem. The standard is perfection. And that's a big problem. See, see we're, we're, all, we're all sinful. We've all broken the commandments. None of us have kept the law perfectly. Paul made that point really clear in his writing to the Romans in chapter three. He said, now, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When it comes to deserving or earning your way to heaven, every one of us is at a loss, including this teacher of the law. Now, really, what the teacher of the law should have said at this point was impossible. It's all good in theory, but nobody, and I mean nobody, can live up to that standard of perfection. And that would have taken the conversation in the right direction. I'm sure Jesus would have been happy to teach him if he had said, okay, great, but I'm, I'm sinful, I've broken it, now what do I do? I'm sure that Jesus would have explained to him like he did to Nicodemus in John chapter three, where Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Or, or like when Jesus said to the crowd that, that was in Jericho a couple of months earlier when, when he was walking through and, and he was going to Zacchaeus' house for lunch, and he, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This was why Jesus came. Love caused Jesus to take our place. He suffered our punishment. I'm a lawbreaker. I, just, I, I have earned a penalty, and what Jesus came to do was pay that penalty. He died in my place, and his death served as the payment for my disobedience. It's, it's, it's an incredible truth, a truth you can hang on today. Your eternity can be secure, not because of your work, 
but because of the work of Jesus. This teacher of the law was, was right there, and he missed it. Instead of declaring his, his need because of his complete shortcomings when it came to keeping the law, he asked another question. And that question shifted the whole conversation. And the, the question that he asked was simply this, so who's my neighbor? He, he wanted to justify himself, Luke writes in chapter 10, verse 29. So he asked, so who's my neighbor? It, it's almost like a snarky response. The, the, wanting to justify himself, like, like exactly who do I need to love? Hey, I'm as loving as the next guy, but, but I, I, I don't want to overdo it here. Help me then, Jesus, with understanding what the boundaries are. I mean, if the goal, if one of the goals, if one of the great, if the great commandments is love God and the others to love, to love others, then okay, then help me here. Who are the others? Are there people I'm allowed to not have in that circle? Are there people that are out there that I'm allowed to hate? It, it sounds like something we would, we would all ask. How far do I need to go? What's, where, where's the parameter? Where's the boundary line? Is, is, is it way out there? Or is hopefully maybe just right here? I, I love these people, but not, but not those people. How, how wide do I need to cast the net of my love? I love Jesus here. He took, the, he took the guy right where he was. He helped him by answering that next question. And Jesus did that by telling a story. And the story was putting feet on the truth about who this guy needed to love. Now, the, the heading in your Bible right above Luke chapter 10, verse 25, probably says the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it, it just begs the question, what's a parable? Well, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus was a master at taking everyday things and turning them into stories that illustrated deep spiritual truths. A farmer was out sowing seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. There was a rich man whose, whose manager was, was accused of wasting his possessions. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Over and over and over in Jesus' ministry, he took everyday occurrences that people were well familiar with, and he turned the story to give it a deeper spiritual meaning. And that's what Jesus did right here. You want to know who your neighbor is? You want to know who the people are that you're supposed to love? Well, then how about this? Luke chapter 10, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus began his story by setting the scene, and the scene was a dangerous section of road. Are you familiar with a, a dangerous section of road? A place you would just as soon avoid a place where traffic accidents happen regularly, frequently, people have died. And sometimes, sometimes it's not just all about traffic accidents. Sometimes bad things happen in general places. And, and that road is a place where bad things happen. Avoid it. 20 years ago, my dad wanted to go back and see his, his home, his childhood home, and my mom's childhood home as well. They grew up in the, on the same street, just about a half a mile apart from each other, and there was a line down the middle, which was really like the line, the, the tracks, the railroad tracks. My, they, they went to different high schools. My, my, my dad grew up um, 
in a in a wealthy home. His dad was a doctor. There was it was it was a luxurious home. There was a swimming pool in that home. My my mom grew up on the other side of the tracks in a widow's home. My grandfather died when my grandma was pregnant with my mom. This was a very 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 modest home. Anyway, Linwood or Compton where my mom and dad grew up, where I was born, is, is not such a great place today. In fact, it's a dangerous place. The race wars in Los Angeles are huge. There, there are lines, big, deep, angry lines drawn between the colors, black, white, brown, yellow. The gangs are mean, they're, they're nasty, they're angry, they're hateful. You wind up in the wrong spot, you could die, literally. Somebody could kill you. I don't know what was possessing my dad on this day, but his old neighborhood was not a safe place for him to be. And as he drove up in front of my mom's old house in his big old Oldsmobile Delta 88, you know, this, this big motor boat of a, of, a, of a car, he was really out of place. He stuck out like a sore thumb. And he, and he was a white boy in the middle of black territory. And oblivious, my dad stopped, and he turned his head, and he was looking at my grandma's house when suddenly he realized he was being surrounded. 20 of the biggest, meanest-looking guys he had ever seen had completely surrounded his car. They were menacing. They looked like they were getting ready to break the windows of his car and drag him out of the car and beat him to death. There are some places you just don't want to be. That would have described the road from Jerusalem to Jericho in Jesus' day. Jericho was on the road that led to and from Jerusalem. Now, when, when a Jew was heading north to Galilee from Jerusalem, he would leave the city and go east. He would go east down to the Jordan River, And he would cross the Jordan River, and then he would pad along on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan. And then when he got close to the Galilee border, then he would cross, again, ford the Jordan River and and come back over and and then go north to his home. You you can follow it here on on this like purple line. Jews would literally walk 60 or 70 miles out of their way. The question is, why? And the answer is to avoid avoid Samaria, this middle circle. Jews hated Samaritans, so much so that they wouldn't step foot on Samaritan soil. So Jews leaving Jerusalem, instead of going straight north, would make a right-hand turn and first head east. And they would go down to the Jordan Valley. Now, you see this on a map looking down, but what's missing here is topography. So what, what I want you to see is, is the elevations here. It was, it was about 15 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, but there was a huge elevation change. Jerusalem sits in the hills about 2,500 feet above sea level. There out, out to the left is the, is the Mediterranean Sea. You come up on to the hills, 2,500 feet, you can see Jerusalem at, at the top, and then you come down into the Jordan Valley. This is the Dead Sea down here. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. Jericho sits above that, about 850 feet 
uh, below sea level, which, which means that between Jerusalem and Jericho, you're, you're falling about 3,500 feet. That's, that's like three quarters of a mile. So in, in the space of about 15 miles, you, you drop in elevation drastically, which means there is a lot of steep and dangerous terrain. And the road is made even more treacherous because there are all kinds of rock formations and caves. What, what, what happened here is that it made a natural place for thieves and robbers to hang out. You, did, you didn't want to travel this road alone. It could be your death. So Jesus sets the stage. His, his parable was, was one that every Jew could understand, and it led to the second part of the story, disaster. Disaster strikes. There's a nightmare that's perpetrated on a traveler. This man who was traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, verse 30 says, fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They, they beat him. And then they went away, leaving him half dead. I'm sure every traveler entering this section of road entered with a bit of trepidation. Have you been in a position like that where like you're in a strange place and every noise is like freaking you out? It's leaving you in a panic. You're wondering if the boogeyman's gonna jump out from behind a bush and attack you. This traveler's worst nightmare came to pass. He didn't, he didn't wind up in the hands of a robber the word here is plural. Think many thieves that jumped out and grabbed him. They surround him. They begin the process of taking everything he owns, his bedroll, his suitcase, food, money, his donkey, and then they stripped him. You can see them knocking him to the ground and literally ripping the clothes off of him, leaving him naked. And if that wasn't enough, they beat him. And don't, don't think of this as like one blow across, like a slap across the face. No, the text here, according to Jesus, is the guy is left for dead, naked in a, in, a, in, a, in a puddle of blood probably on the side of the road, dying. And then these guys take off, hooting and hollering as they go. This poor soul is, is, is all alone, dying. And I'm sure at this point, Jesus had everybody's rapt attention who's listening to this parable. They could all imagine themselves on the road in that, in that condition. And that's when Jesus took the next step. He added to the, to the man's humility by speaking of the unthinkable thing that took place. There were people that were passing him on the road who were literally turning their heads and ignoring him. Luke 1031 says a priest happened to be going down the road. And, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. Now, Jesus didn't just talk about any old person coming down the road. No, J Jesus told of Jewish religious leaders coming down the road. First, there's the priest. This, this would be the guy that works at the temple. The guy who offers sacrifice at, at the temple for the good of the people. He, he would have been in full knowledge, like this teacher of the law asking Jesus these questions, ab ab about the responsibility of showing love and grace and mercy to your neighbor. You would have expected this guy to, to be a paragon of virtue. You would expect to see him jumping off his donkey and running to help the guy, but it didn't happen. He turns his head. He pretends he doesn't see the guy. He moves literally to the far side of the road and passes him by. And then 
There's a Levite. Think of this guy as the assistant to the priest, an associate, perhaps a priest in training. And just like the priest, you would expect this guy to act appropriately, but it didn't happen. Both these guys pretend they don't even see the man. You talk about a calloused heart. So why do they do it? Why did they just pass by? These guys are supposed to care for people. Well, listen, you know why they did nothing? They did nothing because they didn't want to do anything. At the end of the day, these guys just didn't want to be bothered. So they pretended like they were blind, and they went on. And as the state of this poor guy is grabbing the hearts of the people listening to the story, Jesus flips the story literally on its head. He, the, the big ironic twist that Jesus talks about is where the help came from. It was a completely unlikely source. Luke chapter 10, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And like I said, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Jews believed the Samaritans were less than human. They hated them so much that they avoided any kind of contact with them, didn't even want to get the dust of Samaria on their shoes, so they would walk 70 miles out of their way to avoid Samaria. So you would expect the Samaritan to do kind of the same exact thing, pass, pass by, probably a Jewish man laying on the side of the road, naked and bleeding. You would expect him to pass by. Maybe you would even expect him to go a little bit further, like to spit at the guy or give him, give him a kick himself. But that's not what we see at all happening. Luke chapter 10, verse 33 says, when, when the Samaritan saw the man, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him. Then, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. I mean, the, the action's immediate. His his. He can't miss him. He's, his eyes see him. His heart is, is immediately moved. He takes pity. It forces him to stop. He takes care of the man's immediate needs. He performs first aid on the man. Then, then he put the man on his donkey, lifts him up, puts him there, takes his own place off the donkey, gives it to this man, and, and ferried him to a hotel in Jericho. He, and he didn't just drop him off. Verse 35 starts with the words, the next day. The next day, he took two silver coins and, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you, you may have. I mean, that, what this means is this guy spent the night nursing the guy, and more he provided for the guy into the future. Now, remember, the guy had been robbed. He had lost his wallet. He'd lost his money, so the Samaritan takes money out of his own pocket, two silver coins, enough to take care of this guy for several days, maybe even as much as a couple of weeks. And last, he promised the innkeeper, I'm going to come back through town, and when I come, I'll stop in, and I will reimburse you for any other costs that you may incur. And we're talking about a huge investment here. This is a total stranger taking action. This is a man who as a Samaritan had probably suffered all kinds of injustice and abuse from the Jews. And here he is taking care of a Jew. 
You have to think that everybody who's listening to this story by now would have had their mouth literally hanging open in shock. And that's when Jesus moved to make his points. He comes quickly to a conclusion. And he says, so what do you think? Having finished the story, he's turning back to the teacher of the law, the lawyer. And then he, he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, again, Jesus wasn't answering the man's questions. He was simply turning it all back on the lawyer. You've heard the story, so now make a judgment, make a pronouncement. What do you say? And there was honestly only one answer, and the man blurted it out. Verse 37, he said, the, the one who had mercy on him, he was the neighbor. Now, of course, we are all called to meet the needs of the people around us, whether, you, whether they live next door or not, whether their nationality might be the same as yours or not. I mean, it's all irrelevant. We are responsible to meet the needs of the people around us who were hurting. And then Jesus completed the thought. In verse 37, he just simply said, go and do likewise. You, you talk about a twist. Jesus actually said to the Jewish leader, go be like that Samaritan. And with that, Luke brings the dialogue to an end. It's like story closed. And we move on to the next chapter of Jesus's life. But in my mind, it's not over. So allow me to add a final thought here. And that would be the application. Things to personalize, things to take away from the story. I wanna remind you where this all began. A Jewish leader very pointedly asking Jesus, how do I find eternal life? And then he asked another question that allowed the conversation to be taken off track, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered that question, but I wanna bring the conversation back full circle. I wanna drive it right back to that first question, that first all important question. You remember, how do I get to heaven? What must I do to be saved? How do I get there? I, I wanna make sure that you are not sliding away from this. And to help you here, I want to encourage you to take um, two critically important points of application and make them yours. Personalize them. Make sure you don't miss them. And the first one is this. Listen, friends, every one of us needs to accept the love of Jesus and the gift of salvation. Here's a fact. You're, you are sinful. You're not alone. I'm in the same boat. We are all here together. We are all sinful. You have broken the commands. Yeah, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Chances are you've probably broken most of them. And they can all be whittled down to two. Love God, love others. And all those other 611 commands define these two. Love God, love others. If you fully keep the two, you are a righteous person. And you have earned your spot in heaven. The problem is, is that we all, and I mean all of us, come up drastically lacking. I have violated those two commands more times than I care to admit. In fact, sometimes it happens several times a day. There have been countless times when I have not loved God and I've not loved others properly. I've fallen way short and that makes me a sinful person 
And the destination, the eternal destination of every sinful person is hell. That's you. That's me. It brings us to a foundational truth. I need a savior. It's where the teacher of the law in Luke chapter 10 should have immediately gone. The minute the standard was laid out in the law, the, the moment it was love God and love others, do those and you get to heaven, he should have been saying, bummer, man. I mean, I'm a lawbreaker. I therefore need a savior. And honestly, it's where I need to land too. It's where you need to land. I need a savior. Can you say it with me? I need a savior. Come on, let's say it. I need a savior. And here's the truth. Jesus is that savior. Jesus is the one who saves our souls. He paid the price for our sin. It's why he came, to die on the cross. The punishment he paid on the cross was not for his sin. He was sinless. He was your substitute. He died for you. And because the price of sin, of your sin, was paid, forgiveness can be offered. But here's the point. You have to accept it. You have to receive it. If I want to spend eternity in heaven, I need to accept that gift of grace. I need to believe. I need to confess, repent. I need to be baptized. Now you, you may need to do that today. And I'm just telling you, friends, you, you are wise to take the step. You, you are wise when you keep eternity firmly planted in the forehead of your mind. I mean, Jesus is like yelling from the dugout of your life. Stay focused, stay focused. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? And if you, if, you, if you need a savior, friends, which we all do, I'm encouraging you. If that's you today, take the step. And if you need some help or direction, call me. Call me at the church. Send me an email at the church. I will be more than happy to uh, get in contact with you, answer your questions, pray with you, lead you where you need to go. So, so friends, make this personal. Make sure you have accepted Jesus's love and grace. Make sure that you know that you are saved. Don't walk away from it. Then take the second step. And that's to share the love of Jesus with others. I, I think we'd all agree, the love of God is amazing. And that love was never intended to be hidden or bottled up. It isn't reserved for a few chosen people. God wants all people saved. And that means the people who are saved need to talk it up. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, you're an ambassador. You're God's ambassador. Verse 20 says, we are, we are therefore Christ's ambassador as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. A few verses earlier, Paul, the apostle Paul is talking about how this love of Jesus compels him. I'm compelled by the love of Christ to go off and speak. It's what... Paul did for the last 30 years of his life, led as many people as he could to Jesus. He spoke of the love of Christ. The love of Christ that has been poured into your life should compel you to share it with other people. God loved you so much, he saved you. How could I ever be quiet about that? The love of God should drive my life. So here's the question. Who do you know that needs the gift of grace? 
And we're living in tumultuous times. All around us, people are in a figurative ditch. They've been robbed, beaten, left for dead. And when people are hurting, they're desperate for a cure. And what God wants you to do is stand unwaveringly, just like the Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, and give the love and grace of God away. The most loving thing that you could ever do with your life is help another person find the love and the grace of Jesus. So let me ask you, friends, in this day of distress, in this day of pain, who are you helping? Who are you leading? Who are you going out of your way to share that love and grace with? Let me encourage you to bow your heads. And with your heads bowed, friends, I, I, I just want to encourage you to ask God, maybe, to direct you to those people. If, if, if you don't know who they are offhand, and say, Lord, help me to know. And, and I'm sure as you ask that question, there may be even names or faces that are flashing before your mind, neighbors, work associates, people that you know that are desperate for truth, desperate for love, desperate for help. They're, they're wondering how to get to heaven. In this day of COVID-19, it's, I could die. And if I die, then what? What then? And friends, we have the answer. So Lord, help us to see, to see very clearly that you love us, that your grace has been poured into our lives through Jesus, that you have made us right in relationship with you through the work of Jesus on Calvary. And the Father, you are calling us to make a difference in the lives of the people that we come in contact with. I pray, Father, you'll help us to, to be people who are willing to step up, to step out, that will do away with the fear that somehow comes at us and that we'll step over that boundary and be willing, Father, to go to the people who have been implanted into our lives, whether we know them or not, and share your grace and share your love. Father, I know that the message of Jesus has the ability to spring forward in power in times of trouble. It happened in the first century as the church was being persecuted. Love and grace sprang forth from that church and, the, and the, literally the city of Jerusalem and the region and then the world was turned upside down in really hostile circumstances. And Father, in so many ways, that describes us today, hostile circumstances. So I pray that you help us to know and to trust that you work well in hostile circumstances. Father, today, may your grace, may your love pour out of us as we tell a needy world of your grace and your mercy and your love. Help us, Father, to give it away, to be your ambassadors. It's our prayer. We lift it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, friends, it leads right to a moment of communion. And, and really, these emblems are perfect for today 
because my life has been a mess and I needed grace. And Jesus stepped forward and he brought it to me. He offered himself, he gave his body, he gave his blood. And I am called into relationship with him through his amazing love, his amazing grace. And, and I need to be thankful for that. Today, as you take these emblems, I want, I want to encourage you to stop and to be thankful, to know what your eternity held on your own making and how that story has completely changed because of the love and the grace and the mercy of God that he would be willing to pay such an awesome price for you. And as you take those emblems and offer your thankful heart to God for all that he's done, allow that to work in you like it worked in the Apostle Paul to be compelled by that love, to share it with others, to give it to others, that they might know the hope that you have for eternity. So Father, help us. Help us to not shirk back. Father, help us to live in your grace and in your love and in your mercy. And Father, help us to be thankful. And as we are thankful, Father, help us to skip with joy to the world who needs to hear that message of hope, that message of grace, that message of security that we can have in relationship with you, that you love us and paid every price that was necessary to get us over that huge sin gap so we could be back in relationship with you forever. Thank you, Father. Help us, to, help us to just wallow in your grace and in your love. And we lift it in Jesus' name.